Thunderbird 1 is blue, you weirdo. Comedy panorama report meets a superhero film. Very fall-type suite. The idea of an annual Eric Idle Christmas special. Radio telescope end of ontology. It ended up underneath the leg of a chair. Whether they had a million pounds or one pound, they'd always give it a go. We can blame Biggins for everything now. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington, and welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about some of the things that they remember that nobody else ever seems to. Normally, I start these highlight shows by just reaching for whatever Looks Unfamiliar friendly item is nearest to me while I'm recording, and just making something up about it on the spot, but this time, while I was reaching for my copy of Bizarre, an A to Z of the strangest films you're never likely to see, Marvel UK 1995, I accidentally knocked over a Doctor Who talking pen still in its packaging. Yes, you know, a Doctor Who talking pen, like he or she uses on the programme all the time, underlined by the fact that on the backing card it's got David Tennant with his people saying, try me. No idea whether it's working or not, but we will just try it and see what happens. A very, very slightly slow TARDIS in flight effect. The very fact that that even exists just indicates how big Doctor Who was circa 2007. But there was one item of merchandise that it's never really got, possibly for obvious reasons. But anyway, we came to talk about that when comedian, musician, writer and just about everything else Mitch Ben appeared on the show. Because one of his choices ended up leading us in that direction via a very unusual method of propulsion. This is going back to the absolute furthest recesses of my memory. I remember this being something I've still got a lot of my childhood toys. They're in a big box at my mum's house. I've still got pretty much all of my Star Wars figures. I've still got my Dennis Fisher Doctor Who figures. I've still got a lot of my old board games. These were talking the very early 70s. So when I was, I'm guessing, like three or four years old, these are something that I simply call my dad would bring home if he'd been away for more than a couple of days. This is sort of, I don't know, my dad apparently, I, I don't have memories of him being away on business much, but he seems to have been sort of haunted by the notion that he wasn't as present as he would like to have been for my for my very early years. But I don't remember that in that way at all. But he used to bring these things home for us to play with together. They were balloon-powered toy cars. Kind of a very, very primitive version of the jet engine principle. If you imagine a sort of matchbox-sized toy car with a nozzle on the top, which leads to a tube that pokes out the back. And you can pretty much see where this is going. The idea would be that you would blow up a balloon and attach it, I forget by what means exactly, to the nozzle on the top of the car and then let it go. And the resulting rush of air out of that rear exhaust would propel the car forward. And I seem to call they also made a kind of high-pitched whining noise as they did this. So they probably had a kind of a party blower thing inside them. I can find very, very little mention of them online. So I think, as with the Orion musical, this may be one of those things that I alone remember. Can you find much about them? No, there isn't really very much. There are photos of some of them out there, but I couldn't even find a complete list of Apparently there were 12 of them that were launched in 1970. And they all kind of right. like Hanna-Barbera racing cars. I think it's post-Wacky yeah. Faces. They've all got names yeah, got that like yeah. Webbed Wonder, Mean Mother, which is a bit surprised by. Yeah, there were 12 exactly. of them. I can only find the name of four of them so people haven't even catalogued that and you'd think they'd be you know looking like they do and having that novelty factor you think people remember them more but that said I don't know if any would still work now you probably have to fit a new balloon to them I forget whether the balloons are actually an integral part of the car or whether you blew them up separately and attached them too but they were yeah I remember them being just a really fun thing but it is odd isn't it the way some of these things just don't 
make that kind of cultural impact. I mean, it's, it's like we were talking about last time. The 1970s kind of saw almost the death of the non-merchandise toy line. And these, while you're right, the few pictures I managed to find online do have a slightly sort of Hanna-Barbera wacky races look to them. They're not tied in with anything else. They're not, had these been a wacky races time, then yes, somebody would have been, people out there would have been slavishly collecting all of them, but they weren't. They were just a, a freestanding toy line. I certainly don't have any left, but for some reason, when I was racking my brain to think of things to go, because a lot of the stuff I come up with when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, no, 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 no. The point is you're trying to come up with stuff that nobody else remembers or that very few other people remember. And I'm thinking, yeah, we could do, you know, all the other toys from the 70s. You could do Stretch Armstrong. We could do the, you know, the Evil Knievel stunt cycle, which I didn't have and always wanted, despite the fact I played with them at my friend's house. So I already knew they were shit, but for some reason I still wanted one. Or, you know, um, all the rest of them, your scale tricks and everything. Everybody remembers those. Your weebles wobble, but they don't guess. fall down. Everybody remembers. Does. Did you want that Hulk that you blew up with kind of hand bellows and he got bigger and bigger and the cage fell apart? I, I really wanted that. that. And I don't know well, anyone else who remembers it. Hulk. All I know is I remember having a conversation with a boy from down the road saying I'd seen this Hulk and it got bigger and bigger and the cage broke open. And he said, what happens to the bits of the cage? Do they go on the floor? And that's <laughs> a fundamentally important question I've not considered. Yes. That's the only evidence I've got that it existed is I remember that conversation. Inflatable Toy Hulk. I'm guessing that was tied in with the TV show in some way then, yeah? It must have been. Although, no, it might have predated it slightly. I'm not 100% sure about that. I'm not sure the Hulk would have been a big enough deal for that kind of merch prior to the TV show. I mean, obviously people knew he was. But I remember when the TV show started already being aware of the comic book character Hulk and being aware of how the TV version differed from the comic book version. I remember it being great fun, but also incredibly formulaic. You'd always get precisely two Hulk outs, two Hulk outs per app. One at about halfway, just to remind everybody that this is what he does, and then one at the end in which he saves the day in some way. Because I already remember that Bill Bixby had, was already quite a big deal because he'd been in that thing, The Magician, and I remember The Magician being on. Bixby was already, you know, an established big deal on American TV when he got that, the Incredible Hulk job. But yes, I don't remember the inflatable Hulk, but these, say, these Zoomy Balloonies, I was just trying to delve down into the absolute deepest recesses of my memory, and that's what they came up with. So if anybody out there knows anything more about them, were they Matchbox? Is that what they were made by? They appear to have been Matchbox, but again, I couldn't find out whether they originated somewhere else and were licensed by Matchbox, which was yes. what happened quite often, or whether yeah, we were they were a Matchbox that, invention. Yeah. In fact, was it Matchbox who did the... It would have been around the time of the Hulk TV series, the Marvel toy vans, where it was all based on the same formula, where you know, it was a van with the character's logo on the side, and you opened it up and had yeah. computers inside. So just about, you could accept Captain America, you know, having a van with computers in, Spider-Man at a push, the Hulk... No, those computers that he used all yes. the time. You know? Oh, yeah, but it's just that sort of random advertising because you're always getting... You, I remember thinking that at the time that you, you would get a lot of Spider-Man merchandise that just completely ignored the whole point of the Spider-Man <laughs> character, which is that he's essentially this nobody who operates out of his bedroom you know he's not bruce wayne he does not have you know a spider copter <laughs> he does not have a a spider mobile he's a college student cop reporter okay he does not have billions of dollars to spider-man in particular was the one that used to annoy me when they used to do that just that's not what spider-man is <laughs> But yes, 
the toy car market in the 70s was quite interesting because you, you had Corgi. When they would get the license, they would bring everything out in two different sizes. Yeah. You get the Corgi and the Corgi Juniors. So a lot of us had, for example, the 60s TV Batmobile. In the sort of the four inch version with, you know, like the pingy missile that you would lose after, you know, two days and the little Batman that you could sit in the chair that you would lose after six days. And also just the sort of the one inch or sort of the inch and a half Corky Juniors version. The toy car market in the 70s is fascinating thing it really was really was because you got things like there was a liberator from blake seven yeah i got that somewhere even given how big blake seven was the liberator isn't something you would think kids would want a toy of that but they really did i remember everyone having the small liberator was there ever a big one I'm yeah sure. i had that one i don't know i think i may even have my dinky liberator somewhere my tiny to say dinky i mean that as an adjective as opposed to it suddenly occurs to me the rival brand name which <laughs> is the other one with Dinky Toys. These are Dinky and Corgi, you know, much as we had the, you know, the Marvel and DC of ice cream last time, they were kind of the Marvel and DC of toy cars, weren't they? Again, Corgi were Marvel and Dinky were DC, so let's not even bother with that conversation. Dinky had a weird way of recolouring everything, though, didn't they? Because they were the ones who came up with the Blue Thunderbird 2 and the, and yeah. the Eagle Transport with the green nose. They seemed to particularly have decided that Jerry Anderson stuff was way too monochrome, and so their versions of it rose far more colourful. Yeah, I've never seen the satisfactory explanation, because that is the sort of thing he would get very grumpy about but i don't think i ever saw him comment on it at all no i don't because the eagle is you know one of the coolest designs for spaceship ever and i'm not sure why giving it a green nose made it cooler but yeah the dinky ones had a green nose whereas on tv they were white very definitely white and thunderbird 2 was very definitely green but dinkies was blue and i don't really know thunderbird 1 is blue you weirdo thunderbird 3 is red 4 is yellow Five is kind of silver and hangs in spec. We all know this. <laughs> well, the Zoomy Balloonies, though, were a riot of colour. You think of even the tie-in toy cars in the 70s being, you know, a single colour. These are, they're like somebody's throwing a pizza into the Stargate sequence of 2001. It's just like, it's like a rejected Stone Rose's single cover. <laughs> it could well be that that might have contributed to their downfall, because what's the betting that those colours are actually like rather cheaply applied stickers? And it could well be that, particularly since this is a toy car in which, let's face moisture is going to be a factor it could well be that they just <laughs> literally didn't physically last very long that could be the problem they, they, they may be actually physically degenerated at a higher rate than your average toy car and that could be why you don't see them anymore you know this stuff was built to be played with and broken and thrown away you know, you know the, the people making this stuff were not thinking in terms of making collector's items they were making toys that you give to kids who played with them and broke them and got bored of them and got new ones for christmas well i did once see somebody trying to sell a damaged version of the car from remember vegas the american detective series <laughs> about Dan Tanner, the private I remember eye. it being on, but I remember not watching it. It was Robert Urick, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there was a Corgi Vegas car, and somebody was selling a damaged one yeah. on eBay a while back, and I thought, yeah, good luck with that. I'm not sure people buy even a <laughs> one off it. It wasn't one I watched, but I do remember that all the cop shows would get their tie-in Corgi and or Dinky car. So, obviously, you know, the, the red and white Gran Torino from Starsky Dutch. We all had the red and white Gran Torino from Starsky Dutch. I remember somebody bringing out Kojak's car, yeah. which is weird because Kojak didn't have a particularly memorable car the way Starsky and Hutch did, and that's, that was rather curious. And also, these weren't kids shows. Starsky and Hutch was fairly, you know, PG-rated by the standard of some other cop shows, but it wasn't a kid show. It was on, you know, quite late on a Saturday night in this country. I don't know what uh, scheduling was like in the States, but these would get fairly heavily kid merchandise for stuff that, for things that were not kid-oriented shows. That's odd when you think of it. It's like, you know, them bringing out corky cars, of, you know, Martin Comster's car from Line of Duty. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, <laughs> what, you know, 
Why would they do that? But that's what they did back then. There wasn't the professional yeah, there was, Paul Capri. The, yeah. the figures of all three of them, including Cowley. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then the professionals was absolutely not a kid's show. That was actually, the whole, it was, went out of its way to be sort of, you know, about as edgy as you could be for 1979. But yeah, you're absolutely right. They brought out Bodie and Doris Capri. I remember that as well. So it just seemed to be the way that, you know, if a TV show had in any way a noticeable car, then out it came. I mean, you know, one would have expected stuff like, oh, the the XJS from Return of the Saint. I think I may even have had a toy Volvo P1600 from the Saint because that was still getting repeated on on ITV when I was very young. I mean, I remember everybody remembers the Lotus Esprit from Spy Who Loved Me with like the retractable fins. So it sort of did the submarine conversion. Not quite, but it sort of did that. And and I seem to call it being covered in labels saying, don't play with this in the bath, you weirdos. Uh, We know you're going to, but we're just telling you not to anyway, so it's not our fault when it rusted a bit. But I remember that, but also I seem to recall that right up in the 70s, you could still get you know, the Goldfinger DB5 with the pop-up bullet shield from Thunderball and the rotating number plates and all that. So I seem to recall you could still get that, despite the fact that that was, that, you know, that was from a Bond film that was a good 10 years previously at the time. But yeah, that was just it. If it was a car in a TV show, then and it came, even if it was in no way a kid's TV. I think perhaps they were cognizant of the fact that it was grown up. Maybe that just gives the light on what I said about 10 minutes ago. Maybe in that case, they did know that they were marketing to grown-up collectors at least as much to kids who were going to play with them. Maybe they were, but even if sometimes the programmes they were based on weren't suitable, at least toy cars were perfectly suitable for kids to play with. When writer Catherine Lowe appeared on the show, however, she wanted to talk about a board game that really shouldn't have been allowed in polite society at all. This is a board game and it was subtitled The Dream Game for Girls and it, I think it came out in the late 80s. The point of the game was to guess which boyfriends your opponents would pick based on looks and little personality facts. So there was a stack of photo cards, each with a different guy on them. And you pick three at random, line them up on the board and then you'd have three rounds. One of them was, would you like to go to the dance? Would you like to go to a party with me? And then the big one was, do you want to be my girlfriend? And with each round, you'd be given like more facts about the guy. So a fact might be, you know, he wants to move to Florida and wrestle alligators or he has a life-size poster of himself. Or... <laughs> I mean, that's a really weird one, isn't it? Or he picks his nose in public. And with each round, you'd be trying to whittle down who you'd opt for out of the three and which your mates would go for. So as you say, it was kind of like blind date, but it's also kind of like imaginary tinder but for adolescence which is really weird yeah the thing that struck me the most about it was that it's you know it's reasonable they should look like this at the time that the guys in it mostly look like either kind of generic just 17 model blokes i know this because i had a lot of sisters i saw a lot of these pictures ripped out and usually defaced but they would just have generic hunk posing for no reason they look like that or rejected new kids on the block there are people that look like that but there's one called trevor who looks like he's from 1976 and he should be (laughs) touted as the next big thing because he's done a record where he plays the piano and sings about how he's just a guy that writes the music the music i'm the guy that writes it or something he doesn't look like he should be in this game at all (laughs) no there was there was a few like that there was you know i can remember ones maybe someone like called gerald and he'd be on a kind of fold-up picnic chair with a cricket jumper slung around his shoulders. <laughs> was and he, he supposed again, to be the English the... one by the chance? <laughs> yes, completely. It must have been. I think it's one of those things. That, I mean, I don't know whether boys would have had the equivalent, but I think that when you're playing a game like that with your friends, you also sort of figure out 
that there are only certain people that it's acceptable to fancy and you're trying to so part of the game is sort of meant to be you're trying to guess who your friends fancy but you're also trying to guess who it's okay for you to fancy and I can remember there being one who was called Jesse and he was definitely my favorite I think he had like a wet perm and was dressed a bit like a matador and I I definitely got the sense though from my friends that it like that he was an uncool person to fancy so I was constantly trying to hide the fact that he was my favorite and possibly even lying when I'd say oh yeah I'll go for someone else instead so (laughs) I was gonna say did he inform your later choices I don't know. Well, I think he had a certain flamboyance to him, and I like a bit of flamboyance. <laughs> I, think, I think he looked a bit like Andrew Ridgely, so it's sort of like, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, my, my tastes are eclectic. But anyway, moving on. It also had like a picture of some girls at a sleepover on the back of the board. And I can remember them kind of, they seemed to sort of like encapsulate everything aspirational about being a teenage girl. Like I think they had like a bowl of popcorn. They were all wearing Alice bands and kind of in different kind of matching pastel outfits. You can't, you wanted to be them and you wanted to, you wanted to be making the choices that they'd make, you know. <laughs> but also there's the thing about Heartthrob is that when I remember playing it, I think that it does upend quite a lot of stereotypes that people say about, oh, women, you know, they're much less superficial than men. And then when I remember playing it, I kind of think, I think maybe, I think all of us usually knew who we were going to go for at the beginning of the round. And it wouldn't actually matter that much what weird facts you find out about a guy. You kind of had decided at the beginning of the round who you were going to go for. So I think girls can be quite superficial too. Well, like you say, there really was never a boy's version of this. It would have been hard to get boys to play it anyway, but I think it would have seemed a bit creepy, even at the time. In the way, weirdly, I'm not sure that these would be considered acceptable now, but there were so many games based around dating because obviously there was this, there was Dream Phone, there was Party Mania that Lydia Meisen talked about when she was on. There was that very weird Jason Donovan straight from the heart game. Oh, where yeah. I never could figure out who that was aimed at why. Didn't you have to make a jigsaw of him? That's incredible. I really want to play that. I never played that. Yeah, I would have liked to have played that at the time. And the only place you'll see it now is in the Michelle Robergine sketches in Lexi Sale, where in the opening credits of them, he stood in front of a big row of boxes of Jason Donovan's straight from the heart that's so brilliant that's so brilliant that's such a good touch but they wouldn't feel right now would they which is weird because the world is so much more geared toward well literally what this game you know implies the kind of yeah yeah no yeah yeah no i mean it started off with do you remember that hot or not website oh yeah yeah early on really weird was the one time i went on that i was going through photos and there was one genuinely of a woman with richard herring which is (laughs) most unexpected thing ever but it's gone on for you see i remember thinking that was you know okay this is a crazy new world the way it's all gone now yeah ironically i think giving games like this to teenage girls would be considered very undesirable now i think so it's weird isn't it considering that when they get a bit older they'll you know they might well go on on tinder or whatever and it'll be something quite similar i mean another thing that's striking about it now is that you look at a game like that and the box is you know incredibly pink and there's something about even the image of the girls on the back kind of looking at these different guys and stuff and you think the implication that if you're a girl you've got to be into boys you know the pressure there is quite heavy 
And that's not necessarily, you know, it's not it's not a good that if you decide that you like girls instead, then, you know, you want to be able to like have that as an option. So maybe maybe if they did it now, they could do it, but they do different versions. So you'd have the freedom to to pick who you wanted to pick from. Oh, can you imagine what the Daily Mail would have to say about that? Though? I think <laughs> Peter Hitchens would explode. Actually, yeah, let's make it. Let's, let's yeah, flood the shops it. with it. Yeah. Let's definitely make It's so funny. It's also another thing that's really late. make him one of the cards in it, actually. Peter Hitchens would be an option. <laughs> oh, that would be brilliant. That would be so good. Another thing that's really late 80s about it is that the pictures of the men are in black and white. Yeah. And that's so, you know, like the New Kids on the Block video for the right stuff and the video for Straight Up by Paula Abdul. There was just these kind of flurry of black and white videos at the end of the 80s that I thought were just the coolest thing in the world. And actually, the one for Straight Up was, you know, that's a David Fincher one, I think. Maybe everyone on dating apps should be having their pictures in black and white. Maybe this is the trick. Maybe we're just all... Also, it just does show you, if you have pictures of people posing with no context, almost everyone looks ridiculous. So when you, you know, when you're thinking about a game like Heartthrob, you kind of think, well, if I'm on a dating app and I'm presenting pictures of myself, I probably look as ridiculous as these guys do. So... The joke's on me now. I wonder who these guys actually were and where they are now. (laughs) They've never got recognised in the street by anyone from it. (laughs) Oh, that would be a great claim to fame. I was one of the guys in Heartthrob. So do you still own it or not? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think it got lost in a house move. It's nice, though. There are people, there's stuff online where people have reviewed it and there's a a certain amount of information you can get about it online. I told my niece about it, who's 14. She sounded quite keen to play it. So, (laughs) yeah, so there's clearly still a market out there for it. So if anyone wants, wants to relaunch it, I think people would buy it. Well, you might be feeling like you all need some good, clean, fresh air after all that debauchery. Fortunately, when journalist Mick Wright joined us, he wanted to talk about some sweets that you might well find useful if you're out and about in the great outdoors in the current dreadful weather. I really like Army and Navy sweets, which are like a boiled sweet that are black in colour and they taste of licorice and herbs. They kind of got a slightly medicinal flavour, sort of similar to cough candy, but even more kind of hardcore. And I love them. And I used to have them whenever I got to go to the sweet shop and my grandma would be like, what do you want? I'd always have a quarter of Army and Navy sweets. I still like them now but they are really like i don't know it's kind of like in music it would be like saying i'm a big fan of gg allen you know like people be like this is a very distasteful (laughs) thing like why do you like these they are the the black metal of the sweet shop because they are powerful and there's something about them that's very compelling if you like them but if you don't you're just like this is vile why would anyone eat these i just like them Well, I should say that I've been rereading The Great British Tuck Shop by former guests Phil Norman and Steve Berry, and there's a section in that where they talk about the various constituents of pick and mix, you know, not that you would see now, but that you would see on newsagent shelves years ago, and they do question whether anyone ever actually got army and navy suites, and, well, there's your answer, you did, but... I've answered you boys every time. I also liked lots of other sweets, like, I wasn't some kind of, like, it wasn't some kind of bizarre, obsessional thing, I'd eat any sweets you gave me frankly but i just happen to like these i think it is it does tie into my future thing as a as a liker of obscure and hard to like music you know like i love the fall and army and navy suits are probably like very fall type sweet i'm sure marky smith wasn't averse to them actually although he did mention fisherman's friends a lot which really were kind of my equivalent i used to like them when i quite like them as well but they are, like, the thing about fisherman's friends is oh, well actually regardless of sexuality if you want to engage in in any kind of sexual relationship 
relationship with anyone, you can't be someone who regularly eats Fisherman Friends. Because I just think it's just not, it doesn't give you a good vibe. Do you still get Army Navy sweets now? Yeah, now and then. If I go to, if I go past a traditional sweet shop, you know, like if I go to the seaside when I'm in Norfolk or whatever, they still have them in place. Like Great Yarmouth, you could find them in some of the more traditional sweet shops there. I definitely would, yeah, because it's kind of a nostalgia hit. What I also like about them is I really like them, but now I'm a 36 year old man. I try not to eat sweets at kind of like industrial speed. So what I like about them is they kind of are savoring sweet. You know, if you like them, you can't really crunch your way through them without shattering your teeth. And my teeth are pretty bad as it is. So, yeah. But yeah, I can see here that I could get a three kilogram thing of them for 28 quid. I'm not going to do that. But I, <laughs> you should crowdfund it. And I'll just do a YouTube where across a whole day I just eat the th- whole three kilogram. There is that thing, though, about kids do like to have something they can latch onto that only they like. And it rarely happens with sweets. I'm not sure I did it consciously, though. I, take, I think it was basically like my grandparents obviously grew up during the Second World War. They, they were teenagers going into their early 20s by the end of it. I vaguely remember that my granddad must have had some of them once and he just idly like let me have one and i just took to them i really like sour sweets that's what i like now i love a very sour sweet and i what i like in america is they have like obscenely sour sweets to a level probably because there's chemicals that would be illegal here you know they have really sour sweets so again if my partner goes to america for work which he does more often than me i'm always like can you bring me back like obscenely sour sweets that i haven't had before but i wonder if pick a mix of the variety that would have had army navy sweets in it's a bit of a dying art now because i mean well cinemas at the moment pick and mix in anyway because i've been to the cinema recently it's quite limited what you can actually get in there at the moment for obvious reasons but i do remember noticing before all this happened that you know first of all pick and mix got more and more expensive you know obviously ian pick and ian mix were going to retire off the proceeds but then all the traditional stuff got replaced by like you know celebrations and miniature heroes which to me was never the point of it i think it's due with vertical integration in that nestle and cabri probably do these deals with the cinema saying okay we'll give you this for this price if you stock these other things so i think that's what's happened but also i noticed the things that are most common in pick and mix now things like cables and foam bananas and stuff like that which are kind of they're the kind of like the cables really dominate pick and mix now which i quite like but yeah you're right the classics are not there i think the death of woolworths exacerbated the death of the traditional pick and mix and probably traditional pick and mix only exists in some independent cinemas and some sort of whole out sweet shops really well here's hoping that army and navy sweet selection boxes don't replace miniature heroes and celebrations the looks and familiar selection box though was where a number of previous guests joined me to talk about a christmas special from a well-known series that they thought had been kind of forgotten about including emma burnell on the west wing phil catterall on community ben baker on bernard and the genie gareth hirons on future armor me on doctor who paul abbott on the peter serapinowitz show and as you're about to hear now Daryl McLean on Rutland Weekend Television. Rutland Weekend Television was essentially, at its heart, a Monty Python spin-off. It was the programme that Eric Idle left Monty Python to go off and do. It was a very low-budget sketch show that ran for two series, 1975-1976. No audience, tiny studio... Eric Idle sketches, Neil Innes songs. It's very obscure now because it's never been given any kind of video or DVD release or repeat or anything like that, really. It's only becoming a little bit more known now because kind of bootlegs and things have leaked and they're the nearest thing anyone's going to get to see it these days. But there was a Christmas special in 1975 that for a long time was the most elusive episode of it. It wasn't traded like the other ones were. And in many ways, this is the most famous episode because it's 
basically known as the George Harrison one. Unfortunately for the likes of us, the big joke at the end is kind of spoiled by the fact it was something by necessity. You had heard what happened a long time before you ever got to see it. And I like to wonder what the reaction would have been of people watching it at the time. I'll let you explain what happens. Yeah, so essentially the episode opens, you kind of get a bit of an intro. Uh, Eric Card, weirdly, he revives a character that he did on Monty Python. I think the only time he's ever done that in that show, he does his MC character in the gold spangly jacket and he announces that George Harrison will be on and then George Harrison keeps popping up in person saying he wants to do a pirate sketch that doesn't exist and then he's kind of commiserating to Neil Innes about how he wants to do a pirate sketch but Neil Innes is saying well I'm not writing you a pirate sketch and then the very end the the big finale of this joke is they go finally George Harrison he comes on and it's Neil Innes' band Fatso and they're doing this, the intro to My Sweet Lord and he comes on and just when the vocal's about to start he sings a stupid song about pirates instead this is <laughs> there's very few people of our generation who have seen that before reading about it what happens as you just said and that clip itself was it was on a clip show so the the clip of that happening was available but the build-up and the sense and the context of it was completely gone the first time anyone really saw this was about 15 years ago when someone finally got a tape out of the archive and people started oh that's what and they were all watching it it's a really strange because Rutland Weekend Television is it's a bit of a stretch to call it a classic the fact is it's it's everyone loves Monty Python everyone loves Neil Innes and everyone wants to see it but there's a lot of it which just isn't very enjoyable and it's it can be a bit of a trial to watch at times other times it can be brilliant but it, it's it's kind of frustratingly kind of scabby really sometimes it, the, the sketches are too long there's no atmosphere because there's no audience the music videos to the Neil Innes songs are so cheap they kind of they're not very engaging but the Christmas special has a tiny bit more money put into it and as the George Harrison thing and has a couple of other bits which are like the best things they ever did they do a spoof of Tommy in the middle of it they do a big film night parody he does like a kind of Stanley Baxter thing where he's being Tony Bilbo and Philip Jenkinson and they do a big parody of Tommy for like three minutes and it's the most impressive expensive thing that the series ever did it's the most unrepresentative thing you could ever show from it but it's absolutely fantastic we should really say actually about the fact that it looks so cheap and so cramped and you know you can see a lot of things like half finished scenery and so on was actually making a virtue with the fact that it's quite unusual commission for BBC Two and it was made by the presentation department who normally just did things like the weather and you know the continuity linking and so on but they had a weird situation where they ended up with a surplus of money which is how I think the first thing they did as a proper programme was Late Night Lineup, which is a late night BBC Two arts show which the Pythons parodied a lot but then they started going yeah. to basically putting prog rock bands on in things like Disco 2 and the Old Grey Whistle Test and Rutland Weekend Television was their comedy commission because Eric Idle was really closely associated with sort of the prog rock scene at that point it came out of he did a a series on Radio 1 called Radio 5, which is basically a cheap radio station with dreadfully threadbare programming. This is basically that on TV. Yeah. And it was a perfect match because they had a very small studio where, you know, normally you would have somebody say, I'm coming up later on BBC Two. Oh, I can't move. The wall is in my way behind me. I have to keep my arms <laughs> by my side. And no money. And what strikes me now about it, though, is the programmes they came up as, you know, sketch ideas for really cheap programming. Things like the one that always made me laugh was a documentary Churchill's Cat now you would see that on the real Channel 5 <laughs> it would be two hours long <laughs> on, on Boxing Day a bit 
like some of these sketches feel, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, it was a really worthwhile experiment to try and make a comedy program on a presentation budget. And weirdly, that kind of ethos of getting the press department to make programs kind of continues in BBC Children's now, especially on CBeebies, where there are programs that are kind of proper commissions that are made by the press department. There was the panto this morning, because obviously of social distancing, they've done it all on green screen, kind of like a weird playaway style thing, but, you know, with virtual backgrounds and virtual sets. And it's just the normal presentation team that have done it. That experimentation in the 70s has been influential. And you do see a lot of things done on virtual sets now, which is kind of the same idea, really. You know, you're making a virtue about the fact you haven't got production design. You haven't got room. You haven't got space. You've just got people and a background. It is fair to say that even all that said, Rutland Weekend Television is the kind of program that needs an audience. It needs proper sets. It needs slightly more budget in the location stuff. It needs more going into the music videos. It is starved of what it really needs, and I think that's a big reason why it's never really been remembered as a classic. There is also an unfortunate thing where, I mean, it is inevitable that even the most right-on people, when you look back, you know, the standards of previous decades, I don't think, can be judged against now. And, you know, the Pythons, the Goodies, the Beatles were all what you would call the forefront of liberation on various fronts. They sided with the outsiders, but even so, there's a couple of dodgy elements. And in this, I really didn't like where during the film night thing, they do an extended thing about Linda Lovelace, who obviously was known then as a star of Deep Throat, which you know, caused a big scandal, but she had quite a tragic backstory and the bit of parodying a Linda Lovelace Film Festival just came across as a bit nasty, really, in retrospect. Unfortunately, you have to watch out for things like that when revisiting things like this. And like you say, there isn't always the top draw comic content to kind of compensate for that. You've made a really good point, actually, because I actually noticed on rewatching this, there's a lot of kind of quite misogynistic things throughout the entire episode, more than usual. In fact, nearly every scene has got Eric Idle kind of leching over a woman or shouting at a woman. It you know, you've got Gwen Taylor, though, who is, like, one of the funniest women in, like, comedy history. And she does have a couple of, you know, good things to do. She gets to do an Anne margaret impression, which is really, really good. But even then, she's still being leched over and shouted at. Her and Corinthia West, and they're just being slightly abused, really, by Eric Idle, <laughs> out of control. <laughs> well, there's also a Cyril Smith joke, which I don't think anyone was expecting to be problematic in this day and age, but it really is. But it's also interesting to note that Eric Idle really didn't like Margaret Thatcher, even in this early stage. She comes in for quite a battering in a number of sketches. And there are characters named after her as well, aren't there? Unflatteringly. Yeah, well, she's all the way through to Python, really. I think the statue references in, in Python as well. There is in How to Recognise Different Parts of the Body, yeah. most notably, where her brain is in their knee. And Michael Palin is still very proud of that. But it's it's a, it's a very odd special, as you say. There are dodgy elements to it, but it is at least very Christmassy. Nearly every sketch is Christmas-themed, which is not par for the course, really. If you look at a lot of... There's a lot of comedy Christmas specials that have no Christmas content in it all, like the Morecambe Wise ones, where they were just trying to be repeated throughout the year, it does at least try and make you feel festive. But there's an odd atmosphere about this episode particularly. Maybe it's because it was made as a special. It seems like they probably had more fun making it than it is to watch. Obviously, with George Harrison and his entourage would have been there as well. It sometimes feels like a party that you're not quite invited to. <laughs> but there are still really good things about it. It's got this where Neil Innes' testing one-two routine comes from that he did in his live shows for years and years yes. and years after that. As I say, there is, you know, the really good film night Tommy thing, which you would put in a best of if you were making a best of video. It's obviously never going to happen now, but I'm thinking it must have been considered at one point. But it's it's still nice to have, and it's, it's a really good time capsule. What's really interesting is it's from 1975, and there's quite a lot of running jokes in it about the film Jaws which was brand new then well 
that's another interesting angle is that I think the George Harrison, the big joke at the end, you know, the My Sweet Lord into the Pirate song, the context has been lost that he was actually in the middle of the court case over My Sweet Lord at that point. And this was possibly, possibly him getting some of that out, having a go back. And now it's just funny segue, which, you know, goes to show sometimes topical jokes don't really stand the test of time. Yeah, and then he, he released the song this song about that court case which has Eric Idle doing a little monologue in the middle well I say monologue it's about four words but he does a bit of a, a spoken pepper pot thing in the middle of it so it's all part of a you know a theme the other interesting thing to note is you mentioned Radio 5 before so this was Christmas 1975 this was on now Radio 5 had had a Christmas special in 73 and 74 this was Rutland Weekend Television in 1975 doing a special and the year after the way Series 2 was broadcast it meant the last episode of Series 2 and therefore of Rutland Weekend Television was on Christmas Eve. So the idea of an annual Eric Idle Christmas special, there was actually four years where there was an Idle show on on at Christmas. So this is probably the most famous one of that, but it was a strange tradition that comedy fans of the time would have picked up on that there was an annual Eric Idle special. And that makes it all the more strange that, you know, you look at this, you've got Eric Idle, you've got Neil Innes, you've got George Harrison in this one. You've got, I mean, we've not even mentioned the fact that the Ruttles All You Need Is Cash basically came straight out of Ruttle Weekend Television. And yet, for reasons we kind of alluded to, it never gets remembered now. It never gets talked about. This episode was broadcast very shortly before they started making Series 2. You know, the Ruttles would have been on the box at this point when this episode came out you know George Harrison was there and only a few weeks later they were they were recording that Ruttle sketch on location it was it was on the shelf for a long time that second series and then there was a, you know an album and a book they really did try and make it, it had a big high profile repeat of series one they did really try to make it a hit but there's only so much you can do with a program that's got no budget no atmosphere very little that you can show on you know here's a clip from this and you just look at it why is it a comedy program when it's just no one laughing at it it, it was a kind of a victim of its own novelty really not everything broadcast over Christmas could really be classed as novelty though and as political commentator Mark Thompson pointed out sometimes you could stumble across something really quite disturbing indeed The Gifty was a very very strange programme the best way I can describe it is it had all the tropes and trappings of a standard 1980s sitcom down to jaunty theme music suburban setting two couples living in two houses opposite each other the husbands of whom ran a business together and yet as it progresses it's nothing like a standard 1980s suburban sitcom it's actually something very very dark and moves into a kind of philosophical existential mode i didn't watch this when it was first broadcast it came to my attention i don't know maybe 15 years ago or something when it became easier to get hold of old television programs through websites and so forth i managed to get hold of a copy of it and i watched it and i have to say i found it pretty freaky to watch even as an adult that would have been what, about 30 years old when I first watched this. I was pretty freaked out by it. For a start, as I said at the start, you get jaunty theme music, you get Richard O'Sullivan, everyone's favourite 70s and 80s ITV sitcom star. He turns up and his friend turns up as well, played by John Wells. O'Sullivan starts talking to his wife and starts discussing what he's been doing in work that day. And it becomes clear that him and his friend run a business together and the business has recently been taken over by some multinational corporation and they've been sending them you know, experimental equipment to play with. And they have provided them with uh, what he describes as a kind of three-dimensional photocopier. So it can actually take kind of solid objects and reproduce them. And they tried testing it on some objects, but it didn't work or didn't seem to work. Then they tried it on Tiddles the cat and it didn't work either. So then they tested it on themselves, at which point his wife's kind of horrified and said, well, you could have been killed. And he said, no, there was no danger of that. Anyway, shortly afterwards, 
A doppelganger of Richard O'Sullivan's character turns up at the front door and it's clear that the cloning process through this machine has actually worked. The way this sitcom then progresses initially is what you would expect. It's kind of hijinks. It's kind of like, you know, well, you're both sleeping in the spare room tonight, that sort of thing. And then the versions of the two husbands who turned up at the start of the episode go off to the pub together to try and work out what they're going to do about their doppelgangers. And their doppelgangers, who also think that they are the original copies themselves, then turn up at the same pub and sort of plotting against each other takes a bit of a dark turn when the originals then start to plan that they might have to kill the doppelgangers but then they realize that there's an actual instability in the machine that they knew about and that any of the copies that have been made actually only last for three hours 27 minutes at which point they then just disappear and so it becomes clear that all they have to do is wait and whichever ones are the copies are just probably going to just disappear and pop out of existence. And that's when this takes a very, very dark turn, because suddenly they're starting to question, are we the real us or are we the copies? We're not sure. And then they go home and they start playing bridge with their wives. And then John Wells's character becomes transparent and it becomes clear that they are actually the copies. And he disappears in a pop. And obviously his wife's beside herself. And then Richard O'Sullivan is saying, well, I think I'm, I'm going to go now. And he actually goes mid-sentence without turning transparent. And it, it's just just absolutely shocking to me. I mean, maybe some people found this funny, but I just found it horrific because it's like a kind of, you know, are we real or are we not real? And then these, they disappear and then the originals then come home. But it becomes apparent then that they themselves are also copies because they also pop out of existence. And then another copy of the two husbands turn up at the front doorstep and they walk in and then they're talking. They're both very drunk because they're obviously copies that have come out of the machine later on. And then they're sort of apologising and saying, no, we, we, we sent a copy back home of each of us, you know, just for a lark. But then the wives insist, no, no, there were two copies and both copies have now disappeared and they're really confused as to what's going on. They don't understand. And then they hear another copy each of them outside the house about to come in and I think you know having studied mathematics at degree level you know we did this proof by induction I think you can probably say that there were going to be many 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 copies of them I don't know how many it's a sort of m plus one scenario where you know this could go on for a very long time it's such a bizarre program to have been broadcast on New Year's Day in 1988 as a kind of you know light little introduction to the new year I remember this really vividly I wasn't that freaked out by it because to me it was that was the sort of thing you got on Channel 4 around then. Mm. That kind of weird, not always one-offs, but certainly very short-run things where they were not what you were expecting and they tended to stick in people's minds. The things I sort of associate this with are there was that, do you remember that Polish drama The Sex Mission about the men who were sent to a future where it was dominated by women and I think they'd eradicated men completely. That seemed to be one that got into youngsters' heads. Maybe that were too young to be watching it. It was Xerxes, the Swedish drama about the teenagers. I have to be careful I say this because it doesn't sound right now. Collecting underwear tags. It's like a contest. There was, well, there was the other V that caused a lot of trouble in the 80s, which is the very hard hitting. I just think of this whenever I see anyone ranting about, you know, we'll get rid of them all now. Brexit is here and so on. It was Tony Harrison, the poet, did a very, very strong film inspired by, he'd been to visit his parents' grave and there was football graffiti on it and in the film imagining himself in a poem sort of locking horns with his racist skinhead football fan I think Norman Tebbit said it should be banned because it had swearing in it and like well you're kind of missing the point of it there but to me it's bundled in with things like Dick Spanner as well Channel 4 was where you went to not for reality TV and makeovers and so on it's where you went if you wanted to see something weird
weird that was going to really mess with your head. And I'm not surprised that was your reaction to the gifty because it sounds like it had the same effect as, do you remember the Derek Jacobi series, Mr. Pie? Yes. Where he was kind of a, an evangelist who went to Scottish Island. He was obsessed with trying to fly. That bothered me quite a bit. Not because it was yeah. frightening, but because it just messed with reality in a really weird way. I think with the gifty, I think if it had had like a sort of foreboding theme music and it hadn't had Richard O'Sullivan in it, <laughs> some anonymous actor I'd never seen before or I'd someone who I'd seen in science fiction stuff before and then it hadn't had all the sort of jaunty interstitial music between the scenes and the sort of the tropes the sort of fading in and fading out and the, the sort of you know the kind of scenes you would just see in the good life if it, if it hadn't been constructed like that and maybe if it had been filmed in 35mm rather than kind of you know TV camera mode if it hadn't have had those tropes of sitcom I don't think I'd have found it very jarring at all I think I'd have just thought oh yeah but it's because a little bit like in the original series of Survivors when Peter Bowles he's by far and away the most well-known actor in that series and he dies in the first episode and that's really sort of surprising you know it's almost like stunt casting they pick someone who was really well known and I think they did this deliberately with a gifty they must have done they've picked Richard O'Sullivan because he's man about the house he's in Robin's Nest he's me and my girl you know, everyone knows who he is and he pops up in this thing and that and you relax into it. You think, oh, this is just going to be a little lark, isn't it? And it is at first. And the fact that, you know, you've got these doppelgangers and they're sort of locking horns and there's an argument about slippers and there's an argument about who's going to be in the spare room and what the sleeping arrangements are going to be. And it really just feels like a standard sitcom. And, you know, you, you think, oh, that's where they're going with this. And then they go in a completely different direction. And I think that's why it threw me so much. Well, that's similar to this was a BBC Two thing, but from around the same time, do you remember the black and blue lamp that was a really weird play where it started like a kind of Dixon and Doc Green type show I think it was actually used of some minor characters from Dixon and Doc Green or at least maybe from the blue lamp the original film essentially a policeman chases a robber I have to say that because that is exactly what he is and I still can't quite understand it but they kind of run out of the edge of their program and into a modern crime drama called The Filth which is very closely modelled on the bill so hang on a minute this sounds like a reverse life on Mars. Kind of, yes. It's more or less that. And they're appalled by the attitudes of 80s police. And you've got <laughs> this whimpering robber being beaten up for saying he doesn't know what a blag is. When people mess about with form like that, when they put it in exactly the pastiche style of what you're not expecting, it's that much more effective. But it's so hard to get right as well. But the gifty got it right, like you say. It definitely got it right because it was a really kind of... I rewatched that show last night for the first time since I first watched it about 15 years ago and it was still sending shivers up my spine even now so you know well done to I think it's Wally K. Daly who wrote it I yeah. think it was a story originally called Time Slip I think yes it was a Radio 4 play in 1982 I was going to mention that because Wally K. Daly is a bit forgotten now but he wrote all these incredibly mind-bending and surreal radio dramas he wrote for Juliet Bravo as well so that's an interesting <laughs> contrast he also wrote the series Doctor Who that was never made when it was taken off the air in the mid-80s he wrote a story for that called The Ultimate Evil, which he later novelised. It was later made into an audio version by Big Finish. That's a lot more interesting than people, you know, will give it credit for on face value, you know, because you just think, oh, it was unmade. It probably wasn't that good. So, yeah, things like The Gifty were well within his usual area of expertise. The other thing about it is I'm interested to know what the current right situation is, because it was a Channel 4 production, but made by TVS. The yeah, because on TV YouTube it claims it was made by TSW, but someone else could jumps in and corrects them and says it was TV. Yes, it does 
doesn't feel like TSW. It feels like TBS, actually. Well, the thing with TBS is that I don't want to go into the whole thing. It has been mentioned here before, but the rights to their programs are owned by Disney, but Disney don't know what the rights allocations are, so they can't release stuff because they don't know who to pay or who to get clearance from or whatever. It's all a big mess, but I don't know if the Gifty is covered by that because it was technically a Channel 4 production. But see, it's quite sad that I don't think you really get the chance to be surprised by something like this on TV anymore, particularly when you're young, because things are just flagged up so far in advance. You're aware of programmes that you're never going to watch because they're so marketed to you. And the Gifty would not just slip out on New Year's Day now. I didn't watch it in its original context, but I can imagine just how effective that was. Given what you would expect to see on New Year's Day with a sitcom and the way the first half of the programme set up, I think it was perfectly executed. You know, hats off to them. If you think that's spooky, though, then you really ought to skip the next couple of minutes. Novelist Will McLean joined us to chat about a number of creepy cultural artefacts from his childhood, including the fourth pan book of horror, a paperback anthology that actually literally haunted both of us wherever we went. I didn't own a copy of this. This is what interests me about it, is that my sister came home one day and she more or less memorised it like one of the old men in Fahrenheit 451 who's remembered the Bible. She'd remembered the whole of the story, Little Girl Eater by Septimus Dale. It's now enjoying a comeback, this particular story, because it started to be included in lots of horror anthologies, obviously, and the pan books of horror themselves have become quite desirable items to own. So there is more interest in this. But the story itself, when my sister told it to me, I remember it being perfect. I remember it being a perfect, scary story. And I, th- I still think it is. I think it's. A, I don't really want to deprive anyone the pleasure of reading this story, but it has such a bleak ending. And obviously, Septimus Dale is a pseudonym. I did find out this morning who it was for, but it wasn't anyone I'd heard of. But a lot of people think it was Roald Dahl. It wasn't Roald Dahl, just because of the well-executed and the brutal nature of the story. It's just to hark back to that thing where somebody read a story like that at school, went, ooh, my brother's got to hear this, and then memorised the whole thing. I don't think that was particularly unusual then, or that you'd remember enough of the salient points that you'd be able to embroider. Has that skill gone now? I'm going to guess it has, because that's a kind of weird, less scary adjunct to this. I find that when I rewatch things that I've not seen, you know, in God knows how many years, like when I saw the BBC Pinocchio again, Mm. I can remember bits of them instantly. And yet, I think it's because you had much less to take in in those days. There was less stuff, mm. less things got into consciousness. And I can find that, say, if I rewatch Community or yes. something like that, I'll think... I don't remember this episode at all mm. and I've seen it twice already. I think it's kind of that. There's just so much stuff now. There's less impetus to take something in 100% because mm. things don't stand out as much. I quite like that thing of somebody having to remember it and then do a sort of oral history version of it. It's quite <laughs> exciting. That also belongs squarely to the late 70s, early 80s when some people had video recorders and some people didn't. So some people had seen, say, Poltergeist and the job of the those people was then to go into school and explain to everyone else the entirety of Poltergeist. <laughs> and this was a real thing. It was like, because we didn't have a video recorder, for, you know, ever. And so people would, you know, you'd, you'd rely on people to tell you like a town crier to tell you about, you know, or the tales of the evil dead or the extra. It's those things. You rely on someone's memory of it. And that whole era has absolutely gone. 
And the video recorder was the first nail in the coffin of that. But the internet has absolutely done that for books as well. So for years, I thought that story was called The Child Eater. So I couldn't find it anywhere. And eventually, somebody shared a list of obscure horror stories on uh, an Australian website, I think. And it was on there. And I almost jumped when I saw it. It's like, oh, it's a little girl eater. That's what it's called. It was notable at the time, apparently. And it was well regarded at the time. And it just sort of faded. For the benefit of anyone, I can explain the setup, which is a little girl called Miranda goes to the beach with her mum and her mum's creepy boyfriend, Johnny, who just wants to shag her mum, basically. And so Miranda is sent off to explore the beach and she finds under a pier a man buried under a girder. And that's kind of as much as I can give you without spoiling it. Part of the problem with, I better say a bit more about the Pan Book of Horror series, because mm. they are, some of them go for a fortune now. They do, I think yeah. there are about 30 volumes from 1959 to 1989. And it isn't a recent thing they become collectible, because I'm sure you remember this. You remember Chapter One Books in Liverpool, don't you? I do, I do. Yes. Yeah. My main memory of, you know, they had that big bookshelf where they put all the genre books, all the, yeah. uh, the Man from Uncle novels and all the Dune ones and so on. The guy, I think he was the proprietor, the one that looked like Bill Oddie, <laughs> shuffle over with some pan books of horror, and almost before the book had made contact with the shelf, <laughs> there'd be those sort of blokes you get where they look like they were dressed like their interpretation of the doctor. You know, they're walking down the street, and someone at the BBC said, Hey, you're just what we're looking for. You know, with their ridiculous frock mm. coat and their funny hat that wasn't quite like the doctor's hat, and so mm. on. They just fly over and grab them and run straight to the counter, and the money yeah. hadn't landed in his hand before they were out of the door they were that popular even then they're quite hard to get hold of I've got about six or seven I think of them and they've all come to me accidentally I've always found them in car boot sales and things like that but things where people just don't really value them. not in chapter one books in Liverpool certainly and they've become sort of fetishised as objects and that's quite rightly I think that's quite a good thing because a lot of them are very good some of the stories in them are phenomenal and forgotten I bought the reprint of the very first one the Herbert Van Thal edited very yeah, first. Yeah, I always thought that was a pseudonym, but apparently it was his real no, name. real name. Yeah, exactly. I really sound like a vampire. There's a story in that first one called Raspberry Jam, which is absolutely stunning and horrible, and is all the more horrible because it's just set in our world. It's not about vampires or anything. It's, it's just in our world and it's brilliant. I wouldn't have appreciated that story as a kid, though. I wouldn't have appreciated what's good about that, whereas The Little Girl Eater, I think, is just a, a perfect horror story. It's just really precise and it doesn't waste time just remembering about the little girlies which came to me accidentally as i said it made me think that there's a lot of unmined stuff from that era that's in print i was at blickling hall in norfolk in 2015 and misfiled in one of the fiction sections i found four books by a man called david hutchinson who at the time was 18 and between the ages of 18 and 20 he wrote these four books of short stories and they're all brilliant he's still writing i didn't i thought he'd just vanished but he's writing political thrillers now but he wrote these four volumes of stories that are called things like thumbprints and fool's gold and they're absolutely again on the nail that tail end of hauntology they're all you know ghosts and computers and but he writes brilliantly he's i don't understand why he hasn't been more well regarded than the better known peers i think he's, he's just really good to write their stories at between 19 and 20 21 i mean they're just staggeringly good obviously because like you know obviously massively into books and sort of you know but those highways and byways of things i really like 
you often find brilliant stuff there that's been overlooked. The David Hutchinson being a case in point. I don't think anyone talks about those first four volumes. And they're really, honestly, track them down. They're great. They're really good. I'm going to start plugging them now, but yeah. So do you have the fourth pump book of horror stories? And if so, which cover is yours? <laughs> I read about this today. I do not have the fourth pump book. Of, I've got a bunch of others, as I say, but I don't have that one, which is a shame because I would really like to not have to download some pirate software in order to read the little girl eater again. Well, I have an issue with both covers for this because some of the other titles in the series... I don't even want to own because the covers are so mm. unpleasant, so disturbing. But this one, the more popular edition, has a doll with a tarantula crawling on it, which is not that scary when you think about it. No, it's it. not really. No. But what, it's, the, you know, the previous one has some hoods with eyes glowing out of them. That's more scary, I think. But, <laughs> it's uh, not very scary. A tarantula on a doll is not really. It's, it's <laughs> something like, tarantula on a doll is not my problem. It's someone else's situation they've got into. You know, it's like, it doesn't really bother me. It's not going to impinge on my life. Yeah, I do like the cover art of them. So I, I don't know. I can see why people collect them. I mean, I, you know, I'm saying that as if that's something that other people do. Whereas I've got, like I say, six or seven of them. And they were, they were one of the things that were, they were ubiquitous for a while. And now they're not nowhere to be found. Well, before we move on, I just want to give a shout out to a couple of the other titles in the fourth book. There's <laughs> The Importance of Remaining Earnest by M.S. Waddell, which has got to be a comedy one, I'm guessing. Yeah. The Ohio Love Sculpture by Adobe James who I'm sure it's available as a PDF now. <laughs> but that, that sounds a bit up to date. That sounds a bit hippie. But this, The Elephant Man by Sir Frederick Trevis. Now, now that is will that be. the original story? Or is he somebody who's just like, ah, there's something I can take the story off and copy it, but with a different name so no one will notice. It'll be a very earnest essay at the end. Going, We've sampled some horrors from people's imaginations. But did you know that there was a very sweet man who, and it'll be that, it'll be that for three pages. It'll then have that sort of moralising. You thought he was a monster, but you're you're wrong. You're wrong. This man you've only just heard of, and your only source of information comes from me, is not what you thought. You know, and it would just be that. So... Uh, yes, I can more or less guarantee it'll be that. And there's also the haunted telephone by Elliot O'Donnell, which doesn't really sound that frightening. <laughs> Elliot O'Donnell was a prolific ghost hunter who claimed to have seen over, I think, 60 ghosts. And he wrote these anthology books where he talked about his encounters. And they go for a fortune now as well. He just saw so many ghosts in his life. There was nowhere he went where he didn't see ghosts. So his books are all... And he wrote literally Haunted Churches is one of his. I think I have that one. Haunted London, which goes for a fortune. And he also answered the phone once, apparently. Yes, he did. Hello, is, is that Elliot the... This is a ghost. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it would be surprising if it wasn't a ghost for Elliot O'Donnell, frankly. OK, it's safe to come out from behind the sofa now as it's time to look at something a little more wholesome. The BBC's 1984 adaptation of The Box of Delight is now regarded as a television classic, but when it was first on, it really was just another television programme. Well, just another children's television programme at that. Writer Stephen O'Brien came on to talk about that and his experiences of trying to actually get hold of it during the time between that first broadcast and when it came to be regarded as a classic. And we also ended up straying onto the subject of a certain bookshop. What I can't work out is, when it started to become more sort of fondly regarded, regarded as a classic, because there was that whole 
whole stretch where... Now, I've looked into this. Apparently, there was a two-part video release in 1989, which I think was when BBC videos... There were some ones that were around 10 quid, but most of them were £20. So you're already looking at £40 in 1989 for the Box of Delights. I mean, I remember that was the year that Watch With Mother The Next Generation came out, which, you know, had me written all over it. The Herbs, Mary Mungo and Mig, Barnaby. Yeah, I remember thinking... That's too expensive to ask for for Christmas. And it was only about 1993 when, actually, I think I was with you in the, the HMV that there used to be in Liverpool that shared half of its floor space with Burger King. <laughs> and it was now 7 99 I was like, oh, I can afford that now. <laughs> I've actually got enough money to buy it. But I don't think there would have been many takers in 1989 for that. And I think it was just some kind of maybe an educational release more than anything, like a limited release. Because I remember very, very faintly in Liverpool Central Library in the section with subtitle videos they had a copy of that with burnt in subtitles because we used to go there quite a lot to plan creative things and so on because it used to be open to quite late on in the evening and they had these lovely desks in the main shelving area how do we loan that from the library <laughs> because we, we're obviously not entitled to use that section that was the other thing. i don't know if we ever worked that out yeah i mean you know and i think I, that's one of my memories there when he was talking about that is that i do remember that us seeing that video there for the first time and thinking wow you know it, it, it's out it's available on video and, and it's weird because obviously as i said before I'd recorded the whole thing anyway, so I had it. But I think it's that kind of thing, you know, when you, when you're a teenager and you have interest, whether it's music, film, or TV, and you like to own things like official things. It was that kind of wow. It's it's back. It's back out. You can own that, and you know, I think that's kind of what appealed. And and as you said, there was obviously a, a more commercial two volume release later on, if memory serves me correctly, because I bought that one, and then obviously lastly there was the DVD. Well, what I can't work out is when this classic status started to be. Confirmed on it. I can't work out what the sea change was when it went from being say, an upgraded codename Icarus to something more significant. It's an interesting point you make there Tim, because I think it was regarded with some fondness for a long time, but there was a sea change as you say and I was actually say, it's only more recently, I think it's probably the advent of social media, possibly because, you know, it came out on DVD and I remember I, I was really excited you know, it was coming out again on DVD there were some extras on there as well you know, but it was still kind of released to sort of muted reception In fact, wasn't it deleted once and then reissued later, which indicates it didn't sell that well. That's correct, yeah, because I, I do remember that the version I bought did come off the books and then it was reissued and I, I understand still is available today. I would actually put it down to sort of social media in the past 10 years or so when people are able to contribute more to these conversations i think as well mentioning reading the book is a good moment to bring in because i the more i think about it the more staggering i find it that this one program has had such an effect on both of our lives jointly in so many weird small ways and one of them was as you say you had the tie-in paperback and i didn't and that started our obsession with tracking down all these TV tie-in paperbacks, which there are hundreds of, for all kinds of old forgotten serials. And we used to spend our Saturdays in our teenage years going round places like Henry Bone Books next to Lime Street Station in Liverpool, Chapter One Books, which I'll come back to in a minute. What was the place on Brentshaw Street called? Reed of Liverpool. Reed of Liverpool, where, bless him, the guy who worked there didn't know that some of these were really rare. 
and he would just have things routinely listed at 50p or a pound. Like, I got all of the Quatermass script books from there for three pounds, which <laughs> it seems staggering to me now. But we would spend, I mean, we, I remember us pulling things off the shelves that we didn't know what they were. I'm thinking, what's that? What's Raven? What's Shadows? And it was it was this whole new exciting world of this stuff that, you know, was only a couple of years old, but seemed impossibly remote to us. And then, of course, there was chapter one books, which <laughs> has been mentioned on here before. I mean, most recently with our mutual friend Will McLean, when we were talking about the Pan Book of Horrors and how the guy who ran chapter one knew his prices. Forget getting things like the time slip novel from there. It would be priced out of your, your pocket money range. Tomorrow People books as well, particularly the last one, always went for a fortune. But that was, there was a big shelf in there where they put tie-in paperbacks. I remember getting all the Man From Uncle books from there. And as you've mentioned when you've been on Looks Familiar previously, lots of copies of You Can Do The Cube for some reason. But there was also, I just want to get this out of the way because it's haunted me to this day. It had everything culty you could imagine in that shop. It was a great shop if you were an obsessive collector like we were. It was particularly a great shop, it seemed, for people who didn't smell very good. <laughs> I'm not saying we were immune to that. But there's also a section in there of secondhand adult magazines. Even at that age, I thought, hey, who would want second-hand ones? <laughs> Literally, you don't know where they've been. But B, thinking, you can see naked women anywhere. I want a man from Uncle Novel. <laughs> and it had a little cardboard. I'm saying no one under 18 passed this point. So I was like, never going past there. Don't you worry. Isn't it odd to think now that nobody batted an eyelid at that at the time? And it would seem... I don't think the reasons it was there were very wrong. I don't think there was anything untoward about it, but it would be seen as very wrong now, particularly in the shop with a lot of teenagers in. Well, I suppose it was because it was very much, you know, at least in that town of Liverpool, you know, one of a kind. They were obviously trying to do different things in that shop. But I, I remember, you're quite right. You know, obviously, we were going there sort of 14, 15, whatever, you know, quite innocent sort of intentions. But you say some adults would be uncomfortable that. I, I remember I bought the Alternative 3 tie-in, book there for quite a cheap price so obviously he hadn't heard of Alternative 3 I guess not many people have Yeah, but we should just say that was a very strange ITV hoax about some kind of late Cold War thing where were they building a defence base on the moon or something, it was a, it was a pretend kind of world in action documentary but it was, somebody yeah, yeah. did the tie-in novel of it which... <laughs> With a dreadful cover as well. It was a very... But I think that's what these books had in common, too. I mean, the Box of Delights one, you know, when you think of the imagery in the Box of Delights, I know we've moved on slightly, but just to come back to this one, you had all that animation that led by, you know, Ian Eames and his team as well. And just this, this sheer sort of design that went into that show. You had this cover whereby the actual sort of the full frame of the cover of the book was like a snowscape and in the bottom left hand corner you had two tiny figures which were Kay Harker and his friend Peter and then kind of sort of overlaid in the right hand bottom corner with a big thick edging on it is a photo of Patrick Troughton showing Kay Harker you know something or other and it was just such a lazy cover you just think it tells you nothing about this tv show and alternative three as you say is like a bold blue cover and you've got the number three in big like you know filling most of the book cover these, these 
books that had terrible covers. It looked like it was like a supermarket offer, that one. That's my memory <laughs> it was. of it. <laughs> it was. You know, I think a lot of those tie-in books were just lazily done, you know, and didn't really convey, you know, what was inside them. Writer Sophie Davis, meanwhile, wanted to bring up a TV show that never had a tie-in paperback, was never regarded as a classic, and frankly, never will be. This was a one-off ITV special from 2009, and it's possibly the maddest, most excruciating thing I've ever seen on TV. It's basically celebrities doing impressions of other celebrities, and it's a big variety show sort of thing with a studio audience, hosted by Stephen Mulhern, of course. And apparently it aired on Boxing Day, and I don't really remember that context of it at all. I just remember watching it at the time, thinking it was insane. And then in the years since, I've occasionally thought to myself, was that was that some sort of fever dream? Did, did that actually happen? Because the whole thing is just baffling for so many reasons. The range of celebrities they've got involved, some of them are the sort of people you might expect to see on something like this. Like, for example, Les Dennis, Bobby Davro, Paul Daniels, Claire Sweeney, they're all there. But then there's also people like Mackenzie Crook and Ian Lee showing up as Steptoe and Son. Jerry Hall doing an incredibly loose impression of Katie Price with what sounds like an Australian accent. It's just so not an impression whatsoever. And there's also like a little skit about the Sugar Babes lineup changing all the time with Vanessa Feltz and Diane Abbott. Every second of it is so mind-boggling. At one point, JLS show up to just perform one of their hit songs, and it has no relevance to anything. There are no impressions involved. They just sing a song, and afterwards, Stephen Mulhern just sort of turns to one of them and goes, oh, I've been told you can do a good impression. And this poor guy, I don't know the names of JLS, but this poor guy just looks terrified, like he's been really put on the spot. And he says something in a just, like a just sort of a non-accent. It sounds sort of Jamaican. And then Stephen Mulhern goes to the audience, who was that? And about two people go, Louis Walsh. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't sound like Louis Walsh at all. It's uh, it, I could go on and on about this. There's also this guy called Stevie Ricks who keeps popping up every now and again as various characters like Russell Brand and Paul O'Grady. But he isn't a celebrity. He's a proper impressionist. And when he first shows up, Stephen Mulhern introduces him to the audience and is like, oh, this is a brand new face who you're certainly going to be seeing more of in the future. And according to his IMDb page, he has not been on TV since. <laughs> he seems to be very active on YouTube, but this did not kick off a big TV career for him. And it's just so bizarre. He just keeps popping up like, oh, he's a star of the future. Never seen him since. Well, there's a couple of things that struck me about it. I mean, first of all, as you say, there's JLS appearing, quote, as themselves. That's what they're billed as. Now, it just made me think of the way, you know, the impressionist everyone thinks of probably is Mike Yarwood, who obviously was a massive star in the 70s into the early 80s, where, you know, we do a show where he'd do Harold Wilson and Prince Charles and so on. Then at the end, he'd say, and now this is me and sing a song just as himself. And JLS was basically saying, and now this is us, without doing impressions first. <laughs> they misunderstood the whole Mike Yorwood show. But the two things that really stood out to me were, first of all, the range of attitude in the people involved. There were some people that clearly thought they were great impressionists when they weren't. And there were other people like, I would say Paul Daniels, who clearly just thought, 
that sounds like a laugh. I might make myself look <laughs> a bit stupid, but you know what? It's a bit of fun. And the two just jar really badly with each other. Yeah, it's such a bizarre range of people. I did like a thread on Twitter about this a while ago because I decided to watch it on YouTube for the first time since 2009. And I did a few tweets and someone actually like copied in Ian Lee, I think, and was like, why did you do this? And he said something like Bob Mortimer asked him to do it because I think Bob Mortimer's wife was one of the producers right. on it or, or possibly Bob was. When you think about it like that, it kind of makes sense that maybe like Reeves and Mortimer put this together because it does seem like a sketch <laughs> that they would do. That makes a bit more sense to me. But the fact that it was a sort of Boxing Day ITV Prime time show it's just so baffling and i'd be interested to know if anyone listening remembers watching this because obviously a lot of people must have it was primetime itv but i've never heard anyone talk about it in the last 10 years well i don't remember it at all but the mention of bob mortimer was interesting because that brings me around to my second point which was that people never seem to get that it isn't enough just to look and sound like somebody you have to get their mannerisms in a funny way and i think that's why people like bob mortimer's impression so much because because he doesn't try to replicate the person. He hones <laughs> in on something like the way Noel Edmonds will go, oh, it's not a cock-up, is it? I hate them. Oh, no. Just the exaggerated bits of them. But when people just do the voice and vaguely do the look and expect people to laugh, I just never found that funny. You know, it's a bit like, you know, like when you're a kid and somebody would say, look, listen, who am I? I'm Prince Charles. I'm Prince Charles. It's kind of on that level, really. There's no art behind it. And that's why people like <laughs> Alistair McGowan and Ronnie Ancona were successful, because they actually were able to turn it into a, you know, a comic force, really. Whereas this is just people mimicking voices, and that isn't very funny, really. Yeah, just doing the voice isn't funny enough. The material has to actually be funny or, you know, a different take on something. And it is just like you've invited a load of relatives round and they're playing some sort of game where they have to impersonate people and your, your auntie's had a bit too much to drink. And it's just so bizarre. I think one of my favourite bits is the finale where, you know, it's the big ending to the show. They've got a lineup of various people singing It's Not Unusual as Tom Jones. And then suddenly, about halfway through the song, the doors open at the back of the stage. And for a moment, you kind of think, oh, is this going to be Tom Jones? Because that would make sense. You know, they're all impersonating Tom Jones. It would be a nice little surprise if Tom Jones suddenly appeared and joined in. But it's not Tom Jones. It's David Guest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen Mulhern sort of turns to the audience and goes, David Guest, ladies and gentlemen. Like he's the massive guest they've saved for the end of the night. And he comes on. He's also dressed as Tom Jones. He's got an awful, well, I hope it's a wig. He's got an awful wig on. He joins in with the song and absolutely murders it. It's just, it's one of the funniest things. I've got a video of it on my phone. I just watch it occasionally because it just makes me cry laughing every time. It's just David Guest absolutely murdering this song. And JLS come back on in that that performance as well, because why not? They just come on and dance around at the back a little bit. Well, that again was really weird because David Guest, I mean, you know, there was that weird phase before when he was on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, people really 
realised he was actually quite a nice guy, quite a funny guy, which, in a bizarre situation, I later met him in a takeaway and confirmed he was exactly like that in real life. But, you know, when he first started, because he'd show up alongside Liza Minnelli on things like Graham Norton's show, and he wasn't really allowed to be himself or, you know, talk that much, and he seemed really weird. And I remember before he knew his name was, thinking of him as that bloke who looks like somebody's drawn Tom Jones's face on a balloon and blown it up. <laughs> which he did look... So the fact he's doing Tom Jones was just ridiculous to me, really. Maybe that was the thinking behind it. They thought, <laughs> who can we bring on in the finale? Tom Jones, no. Well, Or maybe Tom Jones said no, and they thought, who's the next best thing who slightly looks like Tom Jones? <laughs> Though the thing that really depressed me about it was, because when I started watching it just to see what I could pick out for a clip... <laughs> I could not stop watching the whole thing. It is beyond description, but it's absolutely compelling. But one bit just made my heart absolutely sink, which is Christopher Biggins does Boris Johnson. Now, I know we're supposed to think of him as a national treasure and all that, but watching that so many years later, he did think, mate, it was things like that that's led us to where we are now. I was kind of it a was bit, Biggins bit angry all at Biggins along. in retrospect. He lost all his rent ghost points with me there. Yeah, we can blame Biggins for everything now. And now, here's an extra bit of looks unfamiliar with me as the guest that you might not have heard. I joined Ben Baker and Phil Catterall on the Christmas special of the Don't Let's Chart podcast to talk about something I saw on television at Christmas a long time ago that for an equally long length of time I was not able to put a name to. I knew who was in it, though. Well, this is something that for years and years I only knew as Thing with Cliff Richard in. That's how I referred to it. I didn't know anything more about it, and it took me years to find out what it was. Thing with Cliff Richard, I mean, that could be so many items, including custodial. (laughs) No, no, it couldn't. No. No. It should be. It explicitly uh, can't. Stop it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ten helicopters away. Cancel it, lads. Yeah, well, this is something I saw by chance on Christmas Eve in 1982. I mean, I would not have seen it had I been at home, but... I was round at my grandparents who lived in a council tower block a couple of streets away from us. They were an ITV household. We weren't really, we were all BBC, but they very much, I remember, because I used to go round there all the time, that they, remember them having hysterics, things like Home to Roost and getting really excited and Winner Takes All. Even sometimes when I was round there, because I had the propensity to fall asleep in front of the TV, it would be just getting up to Granada's late night horror slot, which had a brilliant card mm. before it with like really mismatched drawings like a mummy and Dracula and so on and the word brrr across the bottom and I'd be sitting there thinking oh great slurp slew time for some hammer horrors and then inevitably my parents would turn up to collect me straight away but I was round there on Christmas Eve and I just had ITV on and it's this very un-ITV like program on a really kind of slow reflective thing about it seems to be about a family celebrating Christmas throughout, I think it was the 1800s into the 20th century, but the family remained the same. It usually is. They just changed time period. I mean, there were all these performers coming on doing little bits and pieces, and the son of the family picked up a kaleidoscope, looked through it, saw lots of letters jumbled up, which, you know, you don't see through kaleidoscopes, which kind of drifted away to reveal Cliff Richard doing Little Town, which is then currently in the charts version of Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem, to the completely wrong tune, mm. which already really annoyed me. If anyone has not heard it, he goes like, Oh, little town of Bethlehem. And this dreadful trumpet goes, 
That, that's all you need to know, really. I was just thinking, why is this on? Correctly. What's the point <laughs> of it? It was a weird contrast between that, the slowness of it, the old timeliness of it. And my grandparents really went overboard with decorations in their flat. I mean, that was one of the reasons I really looked forward to going around at Christmas was, you know, you'd have all this mad ITV stuff blaring out and then glitter and tinsel and everything everywhere, about eight Christmas trees of varying sizes. But this just stuck in my memory because I couldn't understand what it was. It had a song I hated in it. It had a kaleidoscope that wasn't a kaleidoscope, which really annoyed me. When I got home, I tried to find out what it was. Because as you know, I'm from a really large family. The Christmas Radio and TV Times, it was a nightmare trying to get hold of them. You know, somebody would always have it and they wouldn't give it up till they finished looking and so on and so on. And I didn't get to look it up that night and I forgot to find out what it was called. For years, I didn't know what it was. I just called it a thing with Cliff Richard in. Nobody had a clue what I was talking about when I mentioned it. Correctly, again. <laughs> yeah, but then one day I thought, it's just in the early days of the internet, I found out it was called A Christmas Lantern. It's a very memorable title, obviously, <laughs> what with Christmas and lanterns, you know, that traditional... Uh... Yeah. Uh, yeah, Halloween, <laughs> definitely. I mean, I, I I like the idea that there was a, a regular lantern series, and this was the Christmas special. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing was, which I haven't really said so far, the really weird thing was, I don't understand what this was doing on at prime time on Christmas Eve on ITV. It was more like something you would see on a Sunday evening, like I don't know, Young Sherlock, which was on around the same time, or. Not quite highway. It was slower than that, believe it or not. But- I do not believe it was slower than highway because highway is is a meandering mess of a program <laughs> that has no objective and takes an eternity to reach it. When you said you were going to talk about this, Tim, I did some looking around, and you're right. There's barely anything. There, there is like the TV Times description, and that's about it. And I don't. Why was this on a Christmas Eve? Did ITV have nothing else? I mean, it's possible. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be honest. You know, you've got Cliff Richard, Eunice Stubbs, Mike Reed, as in, can you say the acceptable Mike Reed? Because ironically, the one that used to be the unacceptable one is now the more (laughs) acceptable one. Robert Hardy. But there's all these people that you've never heard of. Who is Tom Young? Who are the Ambrosian singers? Who's Peter Salmon? Karen Berry? Who are any of these people? I'm most interested in Jeff Unkovich, because that's a good name. (laughs) <laughs> Claude Paul Henry, which yeah. is basically like Benny from Crossroads to the Beret on. <laughs> well, so I've, I've had a look at what was on the other side. Uh, on BBC One, they were showing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, the Walt Disney version. It's good, that. Uh, yeah. Which was followed by Christmas with Terry and June. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're right, patron saints of this programme, yeah. yeah. It's not Christmas without Alan Cuthbertson, is it? <laughs> Well, no, I believe that's what uh, they said on the uh, Quality Street tins. It said, <laughs> it's what it's, it's what it's nice font. It was the subtitle of the Christmas Terry in June, and it was accompanied with a picture of a furious-looking Terry Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Falling through. A sun lounger. There was a carry-on film on BBC One. Do you want to guess which one it was? Carry on some Christmas. Carry on some crisps. <laughs> Screaming. Carry on up the Yule. <laughs> It was, it was, carry on, don't lose your head. Oh, Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Henry VIII. And on BBC Two, we had a service of nine lessons and carols from Kings. And then later on, the old grey whistle test presented Elton John. I don't know who to, but it's <laughs> probably... There you go, there he is. 
Uh, at his peak in 1982, obviously. <laughs> oh, to do a little genie. Uh, you, you say, you know, you saw this at the time. Have you ever managed to find it to watch it again? And did you, if you found it? And why? <laughs> I found an ITV Christmas promo from 1982 where the preview image on YouTube is 7pm, a Christmas lantern. And it's got a still picture of what appears to be Boise as a waiter vaulting over a buffet table. So, so, so... I take it to you've never seen it again since then. No, and I would love to, just out of curiosity, just to see how weird it actually was, because it stuck out like nobody's business in the middle of the Christmas schedules. I mean, it's kind of the opposite side of the coins of the black hole, really, which would have stood out for different reasons. <laughs> I mean, they don't. That's what a black hole is. It's black. Uh, and if you're interested, uh, there are several Christmas lanterns available on sale on Amazon.co.uk. How much? I mean, the, the top one is thirty three ninety nine. Right. But it is also a snow globe. So, you know, uh, uh, your mileage may vary. And also, I suspect from now on, all year round, I'm going to be getting emails saying, Do you fancy that Christmas lantern <laughs> like you're getting ones for gravy? <laughs> that is true. I feel like if you get a Christmas lantern that's also a snow globe, you're going to get something that's not that good at being a Christmas lantern or that good at being a snow globe. <laughs> you're better off getting single use novelty items. And now, something else you might not have heard. Me on Music for the Head Ballet, a podcast all about novelty singles, talking to Paul Abbott about the Bernard Cribbin song, Ringing on the Engine Bell. If I break down the list of what he released, so like you say, Folk Song came out of this review that was released in 1960. It didn't do anything in the charts itself, but it clearly gave George Martin the idea that Bernard Cribbins is someone he could work with and, and these songwriters he could work with them as well. So they basically get together and make an album called A Combination of Cribbins, which is a lovely name for an album. First single's Hole in the Ground, very famous, gets to number nine, stays in the charts for 13 weeks. Then they do Right Said Fred, another really famous one that I think every generation of kids since it came out just rediscovered. That gets to number 10 in the charts. Gossip Calypso, which isn't written by Rudge and Dix, gets to number 25. Then there was another mystery I came across. Well, I say mystery, I suspect the mystery is just nobody bought it. One called The Bird on the Second Floor was his next single. And I don't think he even acknowledges it in his book or anything because it clearly didn't do anything at all. And then we get to ringing on the engine bell in 1964. So sound effects on the records are probably on all of those to some extent because it's George Martin and he's a brilliant musical arranger, but he's also a great comedy arranger as well. Oh, exactly. And I think I have a theory that, you know, because there's all kinds of, as well as musical comedy records, George Martin is credited as a producer very prominently on things like the That Was The Week That Was album or the Peter Sellers records and so on. Yeah. And I think it went beyond just putting, I mean, because it goes beyond just putting a musical backing to things anyway, because he really does make the music match the jokes and the timing is spot on, the pastiches are spot on. I think he directed people in terms of what would land on a record in terms of where the jokes went and where the laughs went and so on yeah. because he's the only his comedy records are the only ones really where I always think back to you know most comedy records do not age well you listen to a Morecambe and Wise record from the 60s Mike and Bernie Winters records people like that I like them in their own way but they are not still funny yeah. George Martin's ones all are. I mean, all the records he did with people like Spike Milligan as well. And there has to be a common thread there. And it always makes me think of, there was a documentary on after John Peel died about he kept the box of seven-inch singles that meant something to him that he would have rescued if there was ever a fire in the house. And one of them was Bill Oddie's cover of Ilkley Moor Batat, which for <laughs> him, was for his record label, which if anyone's never heard it, he does it in the style of Joe 
focus with little help from my friends. Where has it been since I saw the Well, go ahead and <laughs> and they played it on this documentary and there were lots of cooler than thou types kind of, you know, not even really saying anything, sort of turning the nose up. But dear old status quo saying, what is that Bill Oddie what sometimes does things on the television? But Billy Bragg was just creased up with laughter and he just looked straight into the camera and said, that's still funny 40 years later and I don't think you can pay a record a higher compliment than that. And that's true of George Martin's productions. They are all still funny and it's clearly because of him. He's not yeah. just pushed a comedian in front of a microphone. He sat down and thought about... I mean, there's a story about... There's another speech album, which is kind of half of the goons and half of Beyond the Fringe did the parody of Bridge on the River Kwai called Bridge on the River Y. <laughs> the story is they were threatened with legal action. They had to cut every K out. I think it was just... It was literally called Bridge on the River Kwai. And then either Peter Cook or Spike Milligan said, hang on, it'd be funnier if we called it Bridge on the River Y. Yeah. And he went, but, but he took every K out to make it to Bridge on the River Y. Why? It's that attention to detail, and that's why his comedy records work so well. Yeah, and also because he was—he wasn't just the producer; he was an A and R man. So he had been out finding these people and and actually making the decision to bring him in in the first place. And clearly, we are not going to be able to avoid talking about the Beatles at some point. And one of the famous stories about the Beatles is that first sort of recording session with George Harrison making the quip about "I don't like your tie." And that sort of cementing the friendship in, of of him as the producer and them as the the artists. He clearly had that with all of these people he worked with, so that you end up with a very rounded, friendly, you know, complete artistic situation in to produce these things, whether it's a pop record or whether it's Hole in the Ground. Yes, and also, I mean, people always forget he did the Beatles Christmas fan club records, which are as close to the Peter Sellers records as you're going to get, really. Yeah, they're, they're very. I mean, they were naturally very funny you know they work from a script but they work around the script he's clearly planned it all in advance musical bits and so on it really really hangs together well they are comedy records in my opinion but also there's the fact that he started out doing all these comedy records that involve really bending sound like i'm bringing on the engine bell you've got the fire bell it's part of the music screeching brakes and so on are people shouting at him to stop ringing on the engine bell and so on <laughs> and that's what later feeds into i'm going to say the beatles because the other acts he worked with didn't go kind of music concrete psychedelic until after the beatles did yeah but it was that expertise that he was able to bring to it to sort of visualize what john lennon was probably describing really badly like you know, say you know when a noggle is a noogle can we have it sound like that please <laughs> and there is a direct line there had he not done these records i don't think the beatles would have sounded quite the way they did don't forget you can find the full version of music for the head ballet and the full versions of all of the editions of looks unfamiliar featured in this collection of highlights and plenty more besides at timworthington.org while you're there why not help support looks unfamiliar by buying one of my books anyway hope you enjoyed all of that see you again soon yeah i really disliked worthy as a kid i i, I dislike him now still and <laughs> that hasn't abated he's just he, what is he for he's not going to teach kids to read because he's awful it's like he's just a horrible person and he used to say word watchers as well and i thought i didn't sanction that i didn't agree to you calling me <laughs> that i'm not part of your gang 
Higher Than The Sun by Tim Worthington. The story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine, Foxface Alpha by Saint Etienne, Screamer Delicate by Primal Scream, Bandwagoness by Teenage Fan Club, and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won. Find out more at timworthington.org. Excellent. So, thank you very much, Tim. And in closing, we salute you, our half-inflated Dark Lord. Oi. 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 Oh, Tom, there you are. Sorry, you, you went quiet there for about 11 minutes. 